This episode is sponsored by my dear friend at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. Are you searching for the perfect boutique spa oasis, expert hands, corrective skincare advice, and are you located in the Denver area? If so, I highly recommend my friend Courtney Parkhill at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. She is a trusted esthetician for 15 years, providing corrective facials, chemical peels, dermaplaning, and high-quality professional home care. She's located in the high-altitude alpine desert of Woodland Park, Colorado, just 14 miles from Colorado Springs and 45 miles from Denver. Courtney wants people to feel cozy, relaxed, safe, and taken care of in her spa, but with the ultimate goal of reaching your skincare goals with a blend of active and botanical clinical ingredients. Retreat to the mountains and rejuvenate your skin. Courtney works on all skin types, all skin concerns, especially rosacea, pigment, aging, and acne. Come have a glass of wine or tea and experience results and relaxation at Alpen Glow Skin Spa. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, guys. Welcome back to the treatment room. So happy to have you here listening wherever you are and whatever you are doing. I'm your host, Tessa Zolli, and I am welcoming a returning guest back to the show today. We're so lucky we got to snag her for the first episode, let alone for a second. Without further ado, welcome back to the show, Jan Marini. Well, hello, Tessa. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's great to be back. Oh, it's so great to have you back. And you guys listening, if you haven't heard Jan's first episode we did together called The Acne Epidemic, it's incredible. And she has such a thoughtful way of explaining acne, even though I've taken lots of classes and webinars, I've never heard it explained quite the way she did. So go back and listen to that episode. And today we'll be talking about skincare myths. So I get to ask all the easy questions and Jan gets to come up with the hard answers. But before we get started, Jan, could you tell us your elevator pitch and what makes you such a credible skin expert? Uh, Well, thank you. You know, just, just a little bit about my background. I've been a product researcher for well over 40 years. And back in the early days, my expertise was in the area of ingredients. You know, people pick up skincare products and they look at the ingredient listing that's very complicated and mysterious. And how do you know if it's going to work for your acne or make it worse or help with your fine lines and wrinkles or your rosacea or discoloration? And I did a lot of lecturing to physicians and medical professionals, skincare professionals. And then I did a lot of radio and television because it lends itself really well to talk shows and People love to hear about ingredients and what works and what doesn't work. And as time went on, um, I began to develop associations literally all over the world with uh, researchers and scientists and physicians. And I started to more and more focus on research and development and uncovering and identifying breakthrough technologies. And, you know, I always qualified the term breakthrough because anybody 
that you talk to, nobody says to you, no vendor says they have the second best technology. Everybody has the latest and the greatest. So when I talk about breakthroughs, um, I'm really referring to things that weren't even in the marketplace. And to give you an example, um, going back to the early to mid 80s, at that time, um, I was an early glycolic acid pioneer and it didn't exist in department stores or drug stores. You couldn't buy it commercially in a product. You could get it for cleaning stains off your driveway and grease out of car engines. And, <laughs> um, and then um, I actually brought to market, I founded and brought to market two companies. Um, one is MD Formulations, one is MD Forte. A lot of people won't remember those companies, but they were the first really, the first glycolic acid product lines. And was really unique and unusual, not just because it was glycolic acid, but because I made a decision that I was going to market them through physician offices, which had never done, been done before. And, you know, today we take it for granted. It's, it's like all physicians, virtually all physicians carry product. But back then, no one carried product. And they were horrified at the very idea that someone would suggest that they carry product. And, of course, the rest is history. And then in 1994... Um, and that company, by the way, was sold to Allergan. And then in 1994, July 1st, we just celebrated our 26th anniversary, um, I founded Jamarini Skin Research. And then here we are today. Here we are today. Her products are fabulous. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> well, thank you. Absolutely. All right, Jan. So... I have a ton of skin myths to go through with you, and these are good ones. And I feel like those of you listening, this is a great episode, not just for estheticians, but also for your clients or your friends and your family. We're going to clear up a lot of misinformation today. All right, Jan, you ready for the first question? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a good one. No retinol in the summertime. That is a good one. You know, that's that's a real misconception. And I'm always a big fan of, I always tell people to answer a question with a question. So if somebody says to someone, well, I, I, I can't use retinol, I won't use it in the summertime. Then I say, well, why? Why do you think that that's a bad thing to do? And 99% of the time they'll say, because it causes sun sensitivity. So first of all, Let's define what sun sensitivity is. Sun sensitivity is an actual chemical reaction with either an internal drug or a certain external drug. So for example, if you've ever had a prescription for tetracycline or doxycycline, one of the cycline products, um, many antibiotics, it'll say on there that you have to avoid sun exposure because it may cause a photosensitizing reaction. And what that is, it's literally a chemical reaction. Even if you're wearing the strongest sunscreen you can get your hands on, you will burn to a crisp if you have that reaction. Happened to me years ago, I ended up in the emergency room. So that does not happen with retinol. It is not photosensitizing. And it's important to continue retinoids in the summertime. Now they've actually done a study where they have highly retinized human skin. So let's say you take a prescription retinoid, the strongest strength, and instead of acclimating to it, you just keep putting it on your skin every night until it gets all nice and red and crispy. Well, then like, they took this skin and they put it in the sun without any protection whatsoever. And, they, and then they had a, an up, 
skin that they also put in the sun that wasn't retinized. Both of them burned, but the skin that was retinized actually healed faster and had less damage. Now, there's one other thing that's really important to understand. And a lot of people don't realize how profound retinoids can be. And I don't mean just any retinoid, but the right retinoid. So the reason that we see changes in our skin, we see what we call the aging process that we think is inevitable. Most of that, 90 to 95%, happen before the age of 10. It's sun exposure. And at least 50% before the age of 20, and it takes 10, 20, 30 years to show up. So, you know, you look in the mirror and you start to see larger pores or your texture changes or you see little fine lines. And we say, well, nothing we can do about that it happens to everyone. Well, what it is, it's damage to your DNA. Now, your genes are, are, are made up of DNA. And some of your genes are referred to as expressive genes. And what they do is they express out information. They express out instructions. That's the only instructions your body listens to. Without those instructions, it doesn't repair. So whether you have a cold, whether you broke a bone, whether you have a sunburn, the only way that you're going to achieve normalcy is your body looking at those instructions. As you age, those instructions become compromised. You don't repair the same way. You know, a good example is, let's just say you have a 12-year-old or even a 13-year-old. They have a swimming pool in their backyard. And they've been in that swimming pool from the time they were toddlers. And they're, they've got a lot of sun damage. Well, does, do they have discoloration? Are they brown spots all over their skin? No. Do they have lines and wrinkles? No. Because at that point, they're able to repair completely for the most part. Now, you take that same person, even though they may have decided, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stay out of the sun. But then when they get into their late 20s and their 30s and beyond, we see all kinds of skin changes that we call aging. And that's because those instructions have become compromised. Retinoids, this is not me saying this. This is, an, this is actual medical studies that go back well over 50 years. They actually repair the instructions coming from your DNA. You could take twin girls. You could put them on the same skincare program. But one would use a retinoid and one doesn't. And 10 years later, one will look 10 or 15 years younger than the other. And they have identical DNA. So it's profound. And when you go into the summertime, even if you're wearing the best sunscreen in the world and you're absorbing radiation to your DNA and you're creating, you know, these changes to your epigeome and, and to your DNA, you're going for the entire season and then after and not using a retinoid. I even have a plastic surgeon in Hawaii that has his, his championship surfers who are you know, very prone to skin cancer. He has them using a retinoid twice a day in the summertime, all year round. Wow. That's incredible. I, I have a follow-up question for you, Jan. Do you have any idea where where or why this myth got started because you hear it constantly. You hear, you know, you should stop using a retinoid before going on your trip to Hawaii. Is there any truth anywhere in this myth or it's just total? Books? Absolutely no truth. And I'll tell you something that's, that's kind of funny. <laughs> okay. So I could show people 
tons of journal articles and studies. And it's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then Allure Magazine a few years ago came out with an article on skincare myths. And a good deal of the article focused on retinoids and went into detail about why this was just a common misconception. And I'm going to tell you, people love that article. <laughs> they like that better than they like the medical journals. So, it, but it is, there's, there is absolutely nothing to it. Now, the fact is, if you wear a retinoid and you don't use a sunscreen, you could have a slightly higher propensity to burn because one of the things that retinoids do is they help to calm down melanin production. So one of the primary reasons that you have abnormal pigment is because regardless of whether it's melasma, whether there's any hormonal component to it, the only way that you produce pigment is through something called active tyrosinase. And active tyrosinase is st stimulated. So you have your pigment that you're born with, but it's stimulated by sun exposure. And depending on your ethnicity, it could be overly stimulated. You could, you know, get very splotchy. It could be thrown off very unevenly. So retinoids tend to calm that down, which is a good thing. But if you're not wearing a sunscreen and you're not producing more pigment to protect your skin, which is a sign of damage, then you could burn a little bit more. But if you're wearing a sunscreen, you're fine. Okay. I'm so glad we cleared that up. I, I feel like we could spend a whole episode diving more into that. But I'll move on to the next one. You can't use glycolic or retinoids on someone with rosacea. Absolutely false. So the common misconception about rosacea is that it is a disease of sensitivity, and it is not. You could have very sensitive skin and not have rosacea, and you can have rosacea and not be particularly sensitive. You are reactive. And you are reactive to certain types of stimuli. And common kinds of stimuli for rosacea would be things like alcohol, or it could be um, really spicy food. It could be sugar. Um, it can be sitting in a stuffy room. It could be changes in weather where some rosacea really flares up in humidity or weather that's overly cold. So it can be lots of things. And for some people, it's some triggers for some and, and not for others. Now, it's a very complex disease. There's no cure, but you can manage it. And for example, we manage it with a product called Rosalie. But it's an inflammatory disorder. It's inflammatory based. And here's what we know about rosacea today. You have a protein in your skin called kisilicidin. It's an inflammatory protein. It's actually a good protein. Because if you wound yourself, it plays a role in helping the healing process. But if you produce this protein for no reason at all, you know, you just had spicy food. Some people get like they, they get really emotional and all of a sudden they just turn really red. Um, then that's a trigger. And so in rosacea, one of the primary things you have to do is you have to downregulate inflammatory pathways. Now, that's what we do with rosalie because there's a peptide that downregulates the kisilicidin protein. But also one of the primary tools in the dermatologist's arsenal 
are things like glycolic acid, azelaic acid, um, even salicylic acid, because what they do is they're highly anti-inflammatory and they help to downregulate those pathways. I'll give you an example. There was a study that was done by two female dermatologists who each head up the Department of Dermatology at two different universities. And what they did is they each took a group of patients. They started them off using 20% glycolic acid home care. That's pretty aggressive. And they started doing peels two weeks later. In every single case, there was a lessening of the flushing and blessing, a lessening of redness. They also were able to resolve and completely control secondary rosacea lesions, which looked like acne. And they were able to halt the progression of the disease. So as you go on progressively, it even gets better and better. And there's not only do we have the, the Rosalie product, but in the skincare management system, there is BioClear. And that's a combination of glycolic, salicylic, and azelaic acid. It's superb for resurfacing skin. It is amazing to make the skin look brighter and smoother and younger looking and your pores look really nice and compact and your skin look refined. But it is also absolutely superb for individuals that suffer from acne and rosacea. I'm so glad you're clearing this up because to consumers, I feel like rosacea products are always marketed as just soothing, calming, and that's what you need. But rosacea is so much more, like you said, than just a sensitive skin. It's, it's reactive, but we can still use products like retinoids or glycolic and they can be highly effective. Well, guess what? One of the things that people with rosacea can be reactive to are botanicals, certain botanicals. And so oftentimes botanicals are talked about as being beneficial, or this is what you should be using, something that's soothing, you know, so-called natural. And that, you know, we don't have receptor sites for a lot of those things. And oftentimes within people like rosacea, it's almost look, it's almost look like as though the body's being attacked. So it, it reacts. And, um, you know, you, you, you need to be careful what you use, but you want to use things that have some type of medical validation behind them that can actually manage the rosacea. And I will tell you how fast it can happen. It's amazing. People notice that their skin right away is far less reactive. And of course, you have to manage your lifestyle and your diet. You have to avoid these triggers, but it can really be dramatic how quickly you can have a result. Jan, are you a believer in the Demodex mite and how that affects rosacea? That one has never been proven. So the Demodex mite is a mite that we have. It's a parasite. And it actually attaches itself in the follicle. Now, interestingly enough, they've done biopsies on people with really severe rosacea and sometimes found uh, relatively small colonies of Demodex mites. Then they will they will biopsy somebody who doesn't have rosacea. They'll find huge colonies. So how it plays a role, we're, we're not certain in just so-called run-of-the-mill rosacea. I'm going to say two things. One thing is that in this study with these two female physicians, they actually were able to keep the demodex, the, the glycolic, kept the demodex mite from colonizing in the follicle. So if it does play a role, it 
definitely would have a very beneficial effect. Secondly, there is something that is a subtype called Demodex rosacea, and that's treated with an anti-parasite called Invermectin. So there are times where you could have an overgrowth of parasites or, the, or somehow maybe there's even a reactive reaction to the parasite that you or I might not have, and then it's treated a little differently. But that's kind of a subtype of rosacea. It's not run-of-the-mill. Next skin myth. I think this is important, and I already have follow-up questions. Okay. If you have acne, you should wash your skin more, and maybe we should qualify what's more. If you have oily skin, is one time a day enough? Is two times a day better? Is three times too much? Well, first of all, it's important for people to understand that acne starts in the follicle. We don't understand. It's a very complex disease. We don't understand it fully, but, and we think that it possibly could be hereditary, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, But it starts in the follicle. So theoretically, let's say you have no tendency to acne and you don't wash your face. And it's dirty. Doesn't mean you're going to get acne. So the fact that you're cleaning your skin constantly, the surface of your skin, is not going to alleviate the acne. And it could possibly cause more inflammation. And acne is an inflammatory-based disorder. So what you have to do, you've got to do two things for acne. And I always say there's no negotiation and no exceptions. Number one you have to introduce something in the follicle that keeps the cells from sticking together because that's the beginning of the acne process. Cells stick together. They trap P-acne bacteria and oil. And the P-acne bacteria, which is harmless, we all have it, whether your skin is clear or whether you have acne, um, in that environment, it eats the oil and then it excretes a fatty acid byproduct and it causes your follicle walls to begin to leak or rupture or blow out. And that's when you get a lesion. So when it gets to the surface, that's the end of the process. Washing your skin more isn't going to do anything. Now, so you've got to get something in there that interrupts the process in the beginning, keeps the cells from sticking together. And secondly, you have to do something that goes after P. acne bacteria. Now you can't kill it permanently. It's part of your body, but you can do something that's bacteria static. And what that means is that it kills it every single day so those colonies stay down at virtually zero and then the follicle doesn't leak rupture or blow out um so um washing the skin is is not going to overwashing the skin is not going to be helpful the reason you wash your skin is because okay you have maybe you have makeup on you also have cellular buildup on the outside. You want to remove the makeup and, you, you know, removing the oil makes your skin feel better. But as far as the oil goes, your oil glands, again, down at the bottom of the follicle, you have a genetic predisposition as to how much oil you're going to produce. No matter how much you wash the outside of your skin, it's not going to change that. You can control it. You can do things, particularly if you have a testosterone sensitivity, that can cut it by 60 to 80%. There are things you can do, but essentially that's how much oil you're going to produce. 
So there's things you can do on the surface that will really dramatically control it. For example, Mattify is a product that we have. And for acne, we do skincare management system and we do something called duality. And I can tell you, you can get complete total clearing and you can completely manage it. Okay, so <laughs> I need to ask a question because I get asked this question all the time by my clients. If somebody's living in a humid environment, they're sweating through the summer, maybe they're going to a workout in the in the middle of the day, you're saying there is such a thing as overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Is there any guidelines you have around what's a good amount in the routine and maybe should they just avoid washing their skin again if they've been sweating? Well, one of the things that they can do, and you know, like you said, it really depends too on your activities and the humidity and all of that. But for example, we make a uh, multi-acid resurfacing pad and it is amazing. Now, normally you would do this pad, you'd wash your face and then you would do it maybe two or three times a week, leave it on for 10 minutes and rinse it off. And it's a combination of acids and it's just phenomenal for any skin in terms of resurfacing it, just making it look younger. But for people that have a tendency to acne, it really makes a huge difference to refine everything and take it a step further. Well, anyway, get to the point. What you can do is you can take one of those pads and you can wipe it over the skin and then rinse your face with water. And what you're doing is you're not only going to dissipate all that oil on the surface and really make your skin look refreshed and glowing and smooth, but you're actually using something that can get into your follicle that's going to make a difference in terms of what you're suffering from. That reminds me of something that I feel like we need to identify as a skin myth, which is the idea that all acids are harsh. Yeah. So there's a there's a common misconception, and I I hear this a lot. Um, you know, if I use glycolic and I use retinoids and things like that, I'm going to thin my skin. And I have a sarcastic answer, and I say I hope so. Because your skin actually ages two ways. Now, the outside of your skin is the stratum corneum. That's a dead layer. Little microscopic cells. You set about 500 million of them a day all over your whole body, but you're just not aware of it. Now, they're supposed to lay like shingles on a roof or like fish scales, in a real even, cohesive manner. And then in between the cells, you have these substances that are very moisturizing, that we call them hygroscopic substances, mucopolysaccharides, ceramides, phospholipids, hyaluronic acid. It gives your skin, makes it radiant, makes it look plump, makes, gives it that dewy and look, and also gives it barrier function so that whether the weather's cold or hot, your skin responds appropriately. Now, look at a baby's skin. Look at somebody who's 10 years old. Do they come home from school and go, oh, gee, I had a really hard day. And by the way, my skin's so dry, I need a moisturizer. <laughs> Never have you ever heard that in the history of 10-year-olds. Never. Okay. Because they have this incredible barrier function. Their skin just looks dewy and moist and refined all the time. So what happens as you age? These cells begin to pile up unevenly. And not only that, you produce fewer of these substances. And when these cells pile up, 
they're dead dry cells and they're sticking there on the surface. And if there's even a medical term for it, it's called increased corneocyte cohesion. And they harden and they cornify. Your skin can actually feel dry, can feel tight and dry. And it's not really dry. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to thin and compact the stratum corneum. We want it to be very thin like a, a baby's child's skin. That's when it looks so refined and so glowing and, and just radiant. And we, by doing that, we also want to encourage and stimulate all those hygroscopic substances in the skin that give the skin volume. And then your dermis is 80% collagen. Now, as you age, your dermis gets thinner. So your stratum corneum gets thicker. That doesn't look good. Your dermis gets thinner. That's not good. About the age of 20, you start losing about 1% a year. But with lifestyle, diet, sun exposure, it can go a lot faster. You get into your 50s and 60s, you've lost, you know, 60, 70% of your dermis. Okay? So what you want to do is you want to thin and compact the stratum corneum and you want to thicken. You want to have a really thick, robust dermis. That's what the retinoids do, and that's what glycolic does. Do you know that, that the right retinoid, the right retinoid, so for example, we make retinol plus MD and retinol plus, uh, and retinol plus and retinol plus MD. They, this, is a, this is a medical fact. They thicken the dermis up to twice as much. Twice as much. And they thin and compact the stratum corneum. They even go, grow new blood vessels near the surface of the skin. This is just medical facts. So this, you definitely want to be on what I call a resurfacing program, which is a system, because that's what you want to do. The thinner and more compact your stratum corneum is, the better it functions, and you want a nice, thick, robust dermis. So well explained, and I feel like that just needed to be said. So thank you, Jan. You're welcome. Love it. Okay, moving on to the next one. Drinking water will plump and hydrate the skin. That's a great follow-on question because you, you know those substances in the skin is what really give you hydration. For example, hyaluronic acid that you produce holds one to 10,000 times its weight in water. Now, they've done studies. It's, it's, I mean, you want to stay hydrated, but that's for your kidneys. You want to make sure you're hydrated. But at any given time, normally, you've got about 60 65% or so water in your body. If you have cellulite or if you have certain fat pockets, you can have up to 80% water retention in those fat pockets. That's a whole different story. <laughs> but, you know, 60 65%. So what happens, you know, I go, I drink way more water than I need. And by the way, you know, there's water in bread, there's water in fruit, there's water in your, your normal food, but I drink way more water than I need. And my body's not going to say, oh, gee, let's have 80% water now. It's going to, I'm going to pee it away. It's not going to say, okay, this water is going to be directed to my skin because you have to have those hygroscopic substances there. And they've actually done studies, again, on twin girls, where one twin drinks, you know, just normal amount of water when they're thirsty, they drink water. And the other twin carries a water bottle and drinks water all the time. And then they measure their skin, and they find that the water content level is the same. Well, I feel like 
that is a myth we have been hearing for years and clients have the misinformation. They just need to be drinking a lot more water to clear their acne or to improve their skin. And you're saying only a tiny percentage of that is actually reaching the skin. So it's really an inefficient way to hydrate skin. What's going to happen is if you're drinking the right amount of water, if you've got those hygroscopic substances, they're going to take on as much water as they can. But if they're not there, then there's nothing for them to hold on to. I mean, there's nothing for the water to, to, or there's no substance that's going to retain that water or retain enough water. And if you really want, if you're talking about acne when it comes to the types of things that you ingest, it's going to be, number one, removing dairy, because that is proven beyond a doubt that it causes acne, not because of the hormones that we give animals, it's because we milk them when they're pregnant. So it's a whole other story. They produce steroidal hormones when they're pregnant. And the second thing is making certain that we have a low glycemic load. We keep the carb levels low. Explain more for somebody who doesn't understand. What what does that mean in terms of somebody's diet? So we all kind of know what the glycemic index is, because if I held up a candy bar, people could say, well, yeah, you know, that's got a lot of sugar in it. But the glycemic load has to do with how it's processed. So your liver has an enzyme that helps to keep you from just dumping glucose into every cell in your body. But as we get older, um, that enzyme can become compromised. And also it can be, you can, you can kind of overload it and we tend to do that with, with our high-carb diets, and it's the total carb level. So as an example, if I said to you, what's going to be worse, eating this piece of really fabulous whole wheat bread or eating a candy bar or eating a quarter cup of sugar, pure quarter cup of pure sugar? Everybody would say the sugar. Well, in terms of the glycemic load, the bread, because of the carb level, will actually turn into more sugar than the sugar. And again, it gets dumped into every cell in our body. Now, sugar is inflammatory. It attaches to our collagen and it begins to cause it to harden, stiffen, and decrease. So it's one of the things that can decrease your collagen. And also, it raises our insulin levels. And it's acting as an inflammatory disorder. Sugar is inflammatory. But when you have your insulin levels raised consistently and it spikes, one of the things that in many individuals, is the body produces testosterone to take the insulin levels down to normal. What happens then? Well, it contributes to acne. <laughs> and particularly the kind of acne you get around your chin and your perioral, your jawline, and it's the, the, the hard underground, you know, the nodule mini cyst acne. And Jan, why, why can't acne be cured indefinitely? Um, you can put it in remission with Accutane. And even Accutane is not a cure. Remission could be six months. It could be a year. It could be 10 years. But also, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people on Accutane. Maybe they don't, they're not getting really bad cystic acne, but they still have acne. They still have mild acne. Yeah. So um, it's, 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 unfortunately, it's a disease in which you have this propensity for your cells to sit together. We don't quite understand it. But we have not found a way as yet to actually prevent 
the internal or the the issues in the follicle, the environmental issues in the follicle that causes that to happen. But we can manage it. And again, I'm a two-time Accutane failure. Well, you saw me, the last podcast we did, we were looking at each other on the screen. I um, mean, you can, you, can, you can get up with my skin with a magnifying glass and you will not see anything. I mean, I never break out. That's because I manage it. And if I didn't do what I do every single day, I would break out. So you can get complete total clearing. This is where people don't understand that, you know, we're desperate to clear our skin and we're willing to try just about anything, but they don't really understand the acne process and just um, how you need to interrupt that process and how you can manage it. And, and by the way, the good news is, you know, a lot of people are afraid of so many different things that you do for acne because they dry your skin out. And what we do is I can actually even take somebody who doesn't have acne, put them on that program. And I will still, they, their skin will look younger, smoother and healthier. I can de-age your skin. I can transform it. That's why I think talking about product is always so important, whether somebody wants to take Accutane or not. I feel like it always needs to be part of the conversation if you have acne. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oil-based cleansers will clean the face better. So that's a misnomer. So first of all, I can take the very best cleanser in the world and the molecules are too large to get into the follicle. Acne starts in the follicle. And so you... One of the reasons why in the system there's a bioglycolic facial cleanser is because it's a glycolic acid-based cleanser, and it's actually the most gentle cleanser that I make, even the more gentle than the ones without glycolic. But the small molecule has the ability to get into the follicle. So first of all, on the surface of the skin, it dissolves and dislodges the glue-like substance or cellular cement between cells, and it causes those cells to lift without being abrasive. And that's the, the, the sensation and the, the look that you want to get, you want to wash your face and then it looks just incredibly smooth and it looks incredibly reflective and soft. And that's not because you've just removed a bunch of dirt, but it's because you've resurfaced the surface. And then you, that molecule can get into the follicle where it actually dissolves and dislodges the glue-like substance or cellular cement between cells where they stick together. That's the beginning of the acne process. And, you know, even if you have, you, you know, people will say, well, I have blackheads or I have, you know, my pores are look large or they're, they're clogged. That's a mild form of acne. So you have to interrupt that. You have to prevent that from happening. And one of the things that happens in acne is P. acne bacteria eats the oil, which it loves and excretes a fatty acid byproduct. So why do I want to use an oil-based <laughs> cleanser? Right, right. Well, and it has to do with what you said. The the molecule molecule is large. Why would we use that as the first step in our skincare routine, let alone to cleanse? To me, that's a trend I'm ready, I'm ready to see go. The thing is, is that oil is not what gives your skin moisture. It's those substances in your skin, the mucopolysaccharides, ceramides, phospholipids, hyaluronic acid. And glycolic actually stimulates those. You know, I, we could spend two hours talking about glycolic, but 
For example, there's a skin disease called ichthyosis. Now, sometimes babies are born with it. Sometimes people have it later in life. But it is so pronounced that I am certain that that many years ago when the, when circuses would travel and they'd have sideshows where they'd have these sort of freakish um, abnormalities, abnormalities where like they'd have like the lizard man. Mm-hmm. It's because they had ichthyosis because it does. It looks just like you, you're a lizard. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. It looks it's like a snake. And you can use all the lotion and all the oil on it. But you know what actually completely reverses it? Glycolic acid. Mm. And you're saying that's because we are resurfacing the skin so it can function at a well, healthy level. It, it actually normalizes the epidermis. And glycolic acid is very complex. So, yes, part of what it does is it dissolves and dislodges the glycolic substance or cellular cement, but it normalizes it because here again, in mild psoriasis, psoriasis looks like it's dead old skin, but it's actually skin that turns over prematurely. It's an autoimmune disease, so it turns over every four to six days instead of every you know twenty eight days. And glycolic acid actually normalizes that. So whether your skin is dry, whether your skin is premature, and that's one of the the magical qualities of glycolic is that it has the ability to have that effect as, and, and also the acne helps also make the skin look brighter in terms of discoloration. Silicone that is often found in makeup, primers, foundation, sunscreen, blocks pores and causes acne. So first of all, um, there's roughly about 2,000 different silicones, and people don't really understand silicone, but there's nothing in silicone that has the ability to block the pore. Now, when you analyze ingredients, there is actually a rating scale for ingredients that have been tested in terms of acneogenesis that goes from zero to five. Five is the worst. That means, you know, you use those ingredients in a lot of people it will actually cause or exacerbate their acne. So for example, a real popular ingredient, coconut oil. Boy, that's a five. And even certain oil-free products have things like isopropyl myristate in it, which feels really thin and lovely on the skin. It's acneogenic, isopropyl palmitate. Um, silicone is not one of those ingredients. Now there could be other things in the product, but another thing about silicone, do you know that silicone is one of the few things that's ever been found in any gazillion cosmetic ingredients in the world that can actually have scar reduction properties. Mm. So whenever you see these um, uh, products that are, that maybe a doctor will give after surgery Mm -hmm. for helping with scars, or there's something called silicone gel sheeting. And what they do is they take this and they tape it onto the skin for surgical scars and people like say, for example, let's say you have had a breast reduction, you have the anchor scar. Um, What it appears to do is it appears to decrease or prevent the type of collagen that causes scars. We've even done some work here where we've taken a product called BioShield, which is what we, is a silicone based product. It's kind of like a primer in a way. It's like the consistency of a primer but it's impregnated with growth factors and it's for use after 
you know, if you have a peel, if you have laser resurfacing. So it's something that you put on the skin afterwards that um, has a really amazing effect in cutting redness and actually helping the skin to heal a lot faster. And we've done some research on that with acne scars. And acne scars are really tough because they're known as tight scars. So let's just say that you have a surgical scar. A surgical scar, you can prevent tension on it. You know, you can tape it and prevent tension so it doesn't stretch and doesn't look as bad. And you can do silicone sheeting. Well, you can't do that for an acne scar. You can't tape it. So being able to, in that window of being able to decrease, I think it's the type 2 collagen, um, silicone can do that. Really interesting. And Jan, you might find this funny, but I took an acne course and was actually taught by an educator that silicone, dimethicone, anything that ends in cone is a problem. And I've since learned this is a myth, but it's something that's being actively taught. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I don't really know the origins of that. I probably should do some research and figure out where that actually came from, because usually there's something that somebody misinterprets or they think applies and it doesn't apply. And, and, you know, just because silicone isn't a problem, it can be in a product that has a lot of other things in it that are problems. Right. Is it true that that kind of like you're saying, depending on what else is in the formula, silicone can kind of exacerbate those things or push them deeper into the skin? Is that a myth too? That's that's a myth too. And and by the way, there was actually a uh, patent that was issued, I want to say within the last year. I don't know what the product is. I don't even know if it's come to market, but it had to do with a silicone type mask that you could wear to bed and you put it on your um, the chest area and it actually was shown to significantly decrease wrinkles. Oh yeah. I've no, I've seen those. I have them. Mm-hmm. The, uh, CO patches. And I think there are some other brands now. Oh, so yeah. And so the research on that was very interesting. So again, you know, there's just, you have to look at the whole product formulation. And I don't know that silicone would have any propensity to push something deeper in the skin or, you know, maybe create some kind of a incompatibility with another ingredient. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, very good to know. And and you're saying it could be safer than a lot of other ingredients you might oh, recognize yeah. or, or not recognize. Well, you know, to give you a good exa- another good example, when people get their skin laser resurfaced or fraxel, let's just say, let's just say for argument's sake that maybe you're getting it for acne scars. Or let's say that you've had acne at one time, but you don't have acne at the time you get the laser resurfacing done. You're doing it for retexturizing your skin. And what's very common is that people break out terribly. And the reason is, is because it causes your skin to re-epithelialize. In other words, you grow skin much faster to, to make up for all of the, the, the uh, ablative procedure. And so it kind of clogs your follicles. And so people break out and it's really annoying because, boy, particularly if you're having a acne scar and you're going, oh, my God, I'm getting more scars. <laughs> so um, one of the things that doctors do 
consistently is they give people something like Aquaphor afterwards. Aquaphor is basically Vaseline. And what that does is while Vaseline is technically non-occlusive or non-acneogenic, it occludes the skin in such a way that it exacerbates that process of all that new cell formation. And so it's, it's occluding the skin. And so one of the reasons that when I designed BioShield is that it doesn't do that. We don't have people that break out. And that's silicone. Have you heard of slugging? Of plugging? <laughs> slugging. Slugging. Maybe you not. Can... But slugging is a trend that started in the past year. And it's basically rubbing Aquaphor or Vaseline all over your face. And that's been recommended on social media. Yeah, there's a lot of things on social media that one of the things, in fact, I was just doing some research the other day and um, they were talking about how they did a study and there's a lot of stuff on social media and on Twitter where make your own sunscreen. Oh, no. And so they took, they took 15, 15 of them, the top ones, the ones that were looked at the most, that absolutely no property, nothing, they were not able to protect the skin. And so, I mean, if somebody wants to rub Aquaphor on their skin, great, but I can tell you that's a, that's a recipe for breaking out. And one of the ways that I can illustrate that. So individuals, um, particularly like individuals that have very, very, very curly hair and certain, you know, individuals that are of color, um, it was very popular for them to use a lot of pomades. And if you look at Aquaphor, it's essentially petrolatum. It is mineral oil petrolatum. Okay, so it's, it's basically, it's Vaseline. It's what it is. And so these pomades, essentially most of them were Vaseline products. And they get put on the scalp and on the hairline to kind of control the hair and make it softer. And one of the things that dermatologists would be fraught with all the time was what we call pomade acne big old zits all around the hairline and on the scalp. Oh, yep. I'm very familiar. I was just talking about this today and, and um, about why I'm so careful with my hair products because I do have mm-hmm. thick hair and I tend to favor those thicker, more emollient products. But I have to be really careful because I'm acne prone too. My skin isn't distinguishing between my what's being put on my hair and my skin. And yes, definitely have experienced that. Yes. And keep in mind that your scalp is an extension of your facial skin. And that's another reason we could spend a lot of time on the fact that people try to wash their hair as little as possible and they use all of these um, you know, oil absorbent products. Imagine if you went a week without washing your skin. Same thing for your scalp. I totally agree. I think we need some sort of revolution around so much dry shampoo and all of this because I've heard there's no evidence to support that washing your hair is is causing problems and it no. can alleviate that oil. They're more and more discussing the fact that you need to. Now, you know, one of the things that people always ask me is how come my hair is so shiny? And what I, you know, it's not just the way that I wash it, but one of the things that I do, and I wash my hair at least every other day, is I scrub my scalp because studies show that if you look at somebody's scalp that hasn't washed their hair for a couple of days, around each of the follicles, there's like a little pile of cells. It looks like, um, 
kind of like little sand dunes all over your scalp. And your, your hair health starts in your follicle. So it would be kind of like if I, somebody had a beard and they were, by, instead of cleaning their skin, they just washed their beard. Got to clean your scalp. Makes sense. It's it's just like acne. You're saying mm-hmm. the inflammation starts in the follicle. So that's what we need to target and treat. And by the way, ladies, um, you know, men have to deal with whether they inherit male pattern baldness, but 50% of all females will have what's known as um, female pattern baldness. Now it's different than male pattern baldness. It's just, it's, it's, it's just kind of, diffuse hair loss. You get into your late thirties into perimenopause or beyond, and you start noticing you wash your hair and all this hair is falling into the sink and your hair is thinning. And so there's a a lot of different reasons for that, but things that can contribute or make it worse are how you treat your scalp. And uh, there's some ways to, to deal with the female pattern baldness that are pretty easy that completely can curtail it. But, um, you know, you need to really just focus on your scalp. I, I'm interested to hear more because I feel like you're seeing into my life and me in my 30s. But what are some ways that you recommend targeting hair loss? Because I think people care about that just as much as skin. Okay. So hair loss has to do with it's, first of all, you have enzymes that are in your follicles. And they're in your facial follicles, your scalp, in your scalp as well. They're known as isozyme type 1 and isozyme type 2, collectively known as 5A reductase. They're harmless. Now, outside of your follicles, you have hormones. And you have estrogen, testosterone, you have progesterone, etc., etc. Women have almost as much testosterone as men, but our testosterone is bound by proteins. And it's like there's a sack around it. So we don't get a deep voice and we don't get a beard and we don't get secondary male characteristics. But um, as we get older, and there's several things can happen. One, your estrogen levels drop, so your testosterone can be more dominant. But also some people have, and this is also a problem with acne, adult acne, female acne, is you get a little bit of a testosterone sensitivity. It's not going to show up in a blood test. And it can be where you're producing a little free testosterone and you have a sensitivity. And what happens is it gets together with the enzymes in the follicle and creates dihydrotestosterone. Now, what happens is, is that in the scalp, it creates more hair loss. Women's follicles, though, don't die. Men's follicles die in male pattern baldness. So we can, we can revive this. If it's happening and it's to the point on the face we see that also as the acne on the chin and perioral. And one of the ways around this, you have to, for, for the face, you've got to do your skincare management and your duality. You've got to manage that. But in addition, people can take something called spironolactone. And believe it or not, it's a prescription diuretic. Now, spironolactone is spelled S is in Sam, P is in Peter, I R O. L-I-R-O-N-O-L-A-C-T-O-N-E. It's been around for well over 50 years. And it 
what happens is that it's simply, and by the way, you take it in a very low dose. So if you had high blood pressure, congestive heart failure, you could be taking 500, 1,000, 1,500 milligrams a day, whatever. This is 50 to 150. All it does is it puts a wall up between these two and they can't get together. So when it's used in, uh, when I recommended somebody to see their physician for severe recalcitrant acne, um, we also notice that they get their hair back. And if they're growing excessive hair on the face, sometimes people can get more hair on the face and less hair on their head. It reverses that. I know you're a fan of spironolactone. I know we touched on it mm -hmm. a little bit in the last episode. And, and you mentioned not many major side effects that we know of. No, um, it, it's, you know, there's, there's really very few, if any, side effects. And years ago, I actually had a topical spironolactone product for the scalp for hair. But the thing was, and I, I will tell you, I got a whole wall of of notes, letters from celebrities saying to us, oh my God, you know, you grew my hair back and it's wow. a miracle. But the thing was, it was so expensive to make. I'm not kidding you. It was like, um, I think we charged at the time and a bottle went a long way. You rubbed it in your scalp, but it was like $165. But the problem was is that the margins on it were horrible. And uh, years ago when I hired my CEO, it was one of the first things he looked at. He said, you guys, you're, you know, we're literally using money on this product at $165. Wow. Yeah. And that's a high price point for consumers. And I mean. it was, it was really hard to get to. It was really hard yeah. to get. Okay. But a lot of tears shed when we discontinued that product. Oh. I know. I want to get my hands on it. I think this is a great place to wrap up the episode. I'm sure we could talk on and on, and I'd love to have you back, Jan. I want to be respectful of your time, though. So thank you so much for joining us today. Is there any anything you want to shout out or plug in terms of a website or social media? Marini.com and... Uh, lots of information on there, um, even, you know, just uh, medical data and a lot of, if you go to the professional side, a lot of conversations with physicians and things like that. But um, yeah, I'd love to come back and have another discussion. Yeah, you're always welcome. Thanks so much, Jan. We really appreciate uh, your time. And guys listening, make sure to check out her site to professionals, right, Jan? Yes. Um, our products go into the professional marketplace, physician office, medispa, salons, etc., and licensed skincare professionals. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. I wouldn't be here today without you. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check Jan and her website out, and I will talk to you in the next episode.